are continuing our series. This is our vision series for the year. A few weeks ago, we told you that our vision for 2023, if you can believe that that's what year it is, that our vision is called Assemble. This year, we are about the work of building together what we cannot build on our own. Uh, we are excited to build. We're not building the church in Tim's image. We're building the church that Jesus wants us to build. Amen? And so that takes some work, and that vision is rooted not just because we thought it'd be a cool idea and uh, we really like the Avengers or something like that. We wanted to call it Assemble. It has nothing to do with that. It's actually rooted in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read again the place where this vision is rooted in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated us for a new uh, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Just for the record, uh, that all the more as you see the day approaching. That's talking about the day of the Lord's return. We're not there yet, and so we'll talk a little bit more about what that means next week, but we can see here that the author of Hebrews, he is laying down the foundation for the why and the how of how we partner with Jesus in his project to assemble his church. You might remember that Jesus said to Peter, it was on your faith that I will build my church. And so it's on the foundation of Jesus and us placing our faith in Jesus that he is building his church. But we're called to partner with that. And, and our partnership, we're referring to that this year, and we believe that our partnership is to assemble the church that Jesus is building. It's his design, and he's called us to partner with it. Now, uh, last week, you heard Pastor Mark bring an awesome sermon in the first of these three uh, messages that we're walking through as we continue this vision series. And what, what Pastor Mark unpacked for us in a message called Draw Near is the first of these three statements that you heard as we read that passage that our vision is rooted in. There are these three let us statements. These are invitations into the partnership project, into the assembly of the church project. And, and those three statements found in verses 22 through 25 are let us draw near. That's what Mark preached about last week. Let us hold on. We're going to focus on that today. And next week, let us consider one another. Now, each invitation is it's an invitation into the life that would, the lifestyle that would build Jesus' church or partner to assemble his church with him. Now, today, as I said, we're going to continue to study and we're going to look into verse 23. Let's read it again so we can remember and, and really narrow our focus on, on what we're studying today. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And who is it who made the promise? 
Jesus. Jesus is faithful. Because he is faithful, therefore we should hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, today what I want to do is, is offer answers to you for three questions that you might not have known you were asking, but three questions that are important for us to have answers to if we want to respond to the invitation to join Jesus in assembling his church. And just so you know now, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to give you another invitation, and that invitation is to turn to one or two people sitting around you and share with them one, at least one thing that you heard, that you learned, that maybe God is saying to you from this message, and then I'm going to invite you to pray with and for each other. So I'm telling you that now so that you can make sure you're paying attention for what is the thing that I might say to my neighbor so that when my neighbor has something profound to say to me, I don't go... <sighs> Because those are awkward moments, and I would hate for you to be in one of those moments. If you want to take notes, this would be a great reason to take notes so that you can turn and, and really be listening for what is the one, at least one thing that God would say to me today from this message. Now, uh, all of that said, the first question that we should have an answer to in studying Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, is what is a confession of hope? Now, confession is, is something that you admit that is true. Uh, I, when, we are say, when we use the word confession, oftentimes we're talking about confession of sin. And so we're, we're confessing in that moment. We're saying something that is true. I did this thing. That's a true statement. Uh, maybe you lied yesterday. Confession would be, I told a lie yesterday. That's a statement of something that is true. You did the thing. And the reason we confess is so that we can receive forgiveness and healing from God and so that we can live in right relationship with him and with the church. But confession, uh, at, at its confession of sin is to say the truth about the thing you did. Confession of hope is to say the truth about the thing you believe Jesus did. Does it make sense? Uh, another way to say that is the confession of your faith. I made a confession of my faith. In fact, Paul describes a confession of faith in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, like this. If you confess, say the truth, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is another sermon entirely, but it's worth noting that many Christians have boiled down being a Christian simply to those two things. Confess with your mouth, say the right words out loud, and just believe it sincerely with your heart. Remember, turn to sincerity all the way up in your heart that Jesus is Lord and, and, and that he's raised from the dead. If I, just, if I just say it once and believe it enough in my heart, then I'll be saved. The reality is that also means that your life should change, right? You're not saved by the way you live. You're saved by the faith that you place in Jesus, but the faith you place in Jesus should determine the way you live, right? So it's important that we at least state that your faith should change something about your life, but uh, salvation comes foundationally, fundamentally from the confession that you make about Jesus. So confession, I, I would say, is not sort of important to the assembly project of, of Jesus' church. Like, if, think about this. If you wanted to build a house with bricks, but you never had any bricks, you're not going to be able to build a house with bricks, right? Jesus said, I want to build my church on people's faith. And if nobody ever makes a confession of faith, then he wouldn't have the bricks he wants to build his church with. So you have to understand, your confession of faith is not kind of important to the assembly project. It is the thing that he is building his church on. 
It is vitally important. Now, I don't want you to get too big of a head about this, but maybe just a little bit, like let this go to your head a little bit, that Jesus thinks you really matter. That Jesus believes that your confession of hope is really important to the greater project, but also certainly to your entire life, right? I mean, we understand that it is the confession of our faith in Christ that saves us, that invites us into relationship, that guarantees eternal life for us. In fact, our confession of faith or our confession of hope is so important, and the early church fathers knew this, that they actually developed clear statements of faith that we could make out loud so that we knew that we were saying things that were true about Jesus. Part of the problem is that there was this thing called heresy. You know, we've totally no problems with heresy anymore. Like, everybody always believes everything right about God. But back in the day, like in the olden days, people had heresy. And so heresy was when somebody believes or says something that's not true about God. And, and, and these kind of heresies were floating around. So the leaders of the church created these creed statements. And the creed statements were crafted and designed so that people could say, declare, and believe what is true instead of the funky heresies that were floating around. Thank God we don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> oh, you got it? Okay, good. Okay. Whew. All right. <laughs> so creeds have been, have been framed for a purpose, right? They're super helpful. Um, and, and they actually help us to, to frame out and hold on to what's called orthodox Christianity. The, the, the things that must be true, the, uh, the essential statements that we must believe if we want to be Christians. And these creedal statements have helped Christians in all denominations of Christianity hold on to orthodox Christianity for generations. Uh, you might have actually heard of something called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is very long. I won't read it to you now. But it was originally adopted in 325 A.D. So it's old. And even older than that, the oldest of all the creeds is something referred to as the Apostles' Creed. Sometime between two and 300 A.D., Christians began to, they, they crafted this original creed, the O.G. Creed. And it was like the first time that the leaders of the church said, we have got to have some shared language here when we say what we believe that is uh, taking all of the truth. And, and, and giving language to shared confession. So in, in fact, why don't we read the Apostles' Creed together? I think this is a good practice. Uh, you might have actually grown up in a church environment where the Apostles' Creed was, uh, was read or, or recited, memorized maybe. Maybe it was part of a process. If you, if you grew up in a, in a highly liturgical church, you might have gone through a process that somebody called catechism. You might have even been required to memorize the Apostles' Creed. Now, forgive all of us Pentecostal people who are just catching up to uh, memorizing things like the creeds, but this is an important practice for us to uh, recite shared language together. Now, I just want to give you one thing. I, I, I don't want to delay the moment here, but um, as we're reciting the Apostles' Creed together, just a heads up, just in case any of you go, in a moment, um, there's a word in the Apostles' Creed. You can probably see it if you haven't already found it. The word Catholic is in the Apostles' Creed. Now, we're not Catholic. We're Protestant. And then in the, in the realm of the Protestant church, we are Pentecostal people. Uh, and, and there's a ton of different denominations. And, and we're thankful for the ways that God has moved in and through the Catholic church. And, and there's some differences of opinions there. And, and, but I just, I just want to tell you this. 
when we use the word Catholic in the, in the Apostles' Creed, it doesn't mean the denomination or the, the, the sect or, 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 or section or segment of Christianity called the Catholic Church. It's not talking about that. Catholic here is a word that means global. So when you read the word Catholic or recite the word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed, you're not saying, I am a Catholic. Uh, and so you don't have to go, oh, I'm, just, I'm going to be silent on that word. Uh, when you say Catholic, uh, it means I'm a part of the global church. So another way to think of that is when we say the Catholic church, we're meaning the body of Christ. And it was just the language that was very popular and used in that day. And so would you, would you if, if you are a believer and would love to recite this creed with me, would you now, I'm going to read the Apostles' Creed, and let's read this together out loud. And we are making, as we do it, a confession of our hope. So the Apostles' Creed is this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's a powerful statement. I mean, no wonder for hundreds and hundreds of years that statement has held meaning. Now, we don't hold that statement up to the same value of Scripture itself. We're not saying that, that the Apostles' Creed is Scripture. It's, it's not Scripture. But it's a great statement that helps us make a clear confession of faith, of hope in Jesus. Now, the creed, I would say, the, the statement of faith, I, I think it is foundational to our Christian faith. And statements like this or confessions of hope and faith in Jesus are developed exactly for this purpose, to help us hold on to our confession, which is what the author of Hebrews chapter 10 is trying to get us to do. Let us hold on to our confession. The next question, though, sort of kind of begins to ask itself, if we are to hold on to our confession of faith, the, the second question we have to ask is, why in the world would I need to hold on to it? Why do I need to hold on to my confession? I mean, after all, isn't it enough that I believed in my heart, that I confess with my mouth? And, 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 and by the way, I'm, I'm going to just say just for a second, um, I'm going to stand away from the pulpit just for a second and just say, this isn't a part of my sermon, but uh, we're not about to get into the, the debate of once saved, always saved. Uh, we're, we're not about to do that. We're, we're not talking about predestination of, of, of Christians right now in this moment. If you would like to know my opinion about can you lose your salvation or, or once you become a Christian, you're always saved no matter what you do. If you'd like to know my opinion, that'll cost you at least one cup of coffee, probably three. 
It's going to be a, it might be a long conversation. But I will tell you this, that wherever you fall on the question of can a person lose their salvation or, or if a person walks away from the faith, maybe they just weren't saved in the first place or, or once saved, always saved. And, and by the way, if, if, if you're like, what are you even talking about? Then, then God bless you for not being bogged down in like uh, debates that have just plagued the church for generations. God bless you in your freedom to just love Jesus. Just, yes, stay there. But if this, is a, if this is a weighty question for you, God bless you in the weightiness of you asking the question as well. And can I just say that where we will land after one, three, or a hundred cups of coffee should always be Jesus is Lord. And, and, the, and scripture tells us to hold on to the confession of our faith. Whether or not God is holding on to you is probably a coffee conversation. How strong do you think his grip is? But it's a coffee conversation. It's a co I'm gonna move back over, I'm gonna move over here now to get away from that. I'm just saying that the Bible tells us to hold on and I propose to you that that means we should hold on, right? Okay, good, good, let's, let's, get, let's get back on track. Okay, all right, so, but why? Why should we hold on? Whether or not you think, have opinions, feelings, or whether you don't even care about the once saved, always saved question, scripture tells us to hold on, why? Simple, because you have an enemy. And the enemy that we have is working overtime, has never taken a vacation to, to try to get us to let go of our confession of faith. Jesus talks about it this way in a, in a story that we refer to as the parable of the sower. He tells this parable, the disciples didn't understand it because Jesus and the disciples had this issue where they often didn't understand things that Jesus said. But Jesus in this moment is gracious enough to explain the thing that he meant when he told the parable of the sower. And so here in Mark chapter 4, you can see Jesus explaining the parable of the sower. He says, the sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path, where they hear immediately, and immediately Satan comes and takes the word that is sown in them. You have an enemy, the devil, who wants to come and take the word away that was sown in your life. And others are like the seed, the seed thrown on rocky ground. When they hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like the seed thrown, sown on thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what is sown. Now, the early church fathers, they actually had a way of describing this issue in, in, in kind of their modern language. And they came up with ultimately saying that the word of God has three main enemies in our lives. And those three main enemies are, can be boiled down to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, let's briefly examine each of them. The world, not the planet Earth. Like, Earth is not the enemy of, of your soul but the world. The world is what Jesus describes as the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things in the parable of the sower. Uh, the world itself, I, I think we would understand and agree that the world itself actually plays a neutral role in your spirituality. 
most things, most things are neither good nor bad, right? For example, Paul taught Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, look, money is not evil. Money is neutral. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And craving money has caused some to wander away from the faith. So it's not money that's bad. It's your heart in relation to money. Right? The money can then serve as a placeholder for any otherwise neutral things, right? The love of television is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of social media is a root of all kinds of evil. We all said amen and turned it off and lived happily ever after. The love of power or influence is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, the world is neither good or bad, but it can point people to or away from God based on, largely based on the desire of your own heart, which then sets us up for the other enemy, which is the flesh. In writing about being tempted to sin, James writes in James chapter 1, verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But, listen, this hurts, this hurts. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Man, it was me all along. In verse 15, he goes, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So what produces sin in your life? Money. No, it's not money. My neighbor. No. Don't nudge your neighbor. Look, most, other, most things are neutral. It's your desires. It's the state of your heart. How, how is your heart? That's going to determine how you engage with the things of the world. Your flesh is often what produces sin. And over time, given, our, given to our own evil desires, sin produces death in our lives. Thankfully, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, the way out, just so that we understand, the way out of temptation is the grace of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not you just going like, reciting this verse, and therefore I will never be tempted again. No, like we don't have the spirit of stupid for Jesus. We, we do the work, and the work is run to the way out. And the way out is always Jesus, right? The, the grace of Jesus is given to us because he died so that we could have it no matter what. And the Holy Spirit was sent. One of his jobs is to convict us of sin. So thank God for Jesus and the Holy Spirit who help us have a way out of temptation. So again, the world is largely neutral, but our desires are sinful. And then playing on all of that is our third enemy of our confession of hope, which is the devil. Just for the record, the devil is not an idea. It was not made up. He's not a metaphor to 
put f f some kind of like illustrative poetic flesh onto things that are bad. The devil is real. The devil, also known as Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, is a created being like an angel. He actually used to reside in heaven, but he became prideful. He said to himself, I want to be worshipped. I want to receive the worship that goes to God. And so as a result of his pride, he fell from heaven. And he took a group of other angels with him. We now know those other angels as demons. The devil and demons hate God and they hate you. Because you can have what they can never have. You can enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can, you can be made righteous. You can experience love and worship. And they cannot. They surrendered that. And they now hate you and are working, actively working against your life. And the crazy thing is you don't even have to be a Christian to be hated by the devil. He hates you just because you're made in the image of God. Just because he loves you and, and he hates God so much that he hates anything God loves. Just, just so you know, like, no one is, is hated by the devil just because they're a terrible person. It's just because they're a person. Right? We just, it's important that we know that. The devil hates God and he hates his people. In fact, Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Oh my goodness, he hates you so much. Now, the devil does have power in the world. It's important that we understand that. The devil has power in the world. He can manipulate, he can twist truth, he can lie to you. He can incite hatred. And, and it, Jesus in John chapter 8 goes so far as to call him the father of lies. So he does have power in the world. But it's important that we understand that there's a difference between power and authority. That Jesus has authority even though Satan has power. Right? Like I, I have power to do some things, but do I have authority to do some things? Those are different conversations. So... We'll get back on track in just a second, but it's important that we say in James chapter 4, verse 7, that we're told to submit to God, to God's authority, submit to God, and then resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Because submitting to the authority of God trumps the power of the devil. So he has to flee from us. So these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, have billions and billions of varied different kinds of effects on our lives. Left to our own devices, we are led away from faith. We let go of the confession of our faith, and, and, and that is not obviously God's plan for us. And in his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer writes a lot about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he says, our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war against guns and bombs. It's not against people at all. It's a war on lies, and the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies, and they wreak havoc in our souls. I mean, no wonder that we are told to hold on to our confession of hope. Not just a little bit, but without wavering. Right? Without wavering. 
And that sets us up for our third question, our ultimate question of the day. How do I actually do the thing I'm being invited to do? How, how do I hold on to my confession of faith without wavering? How do I do this? Now, again, we're not asking the question simply, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? How you got into the kingdom of heaven was by placing your faith in Christ. We're being invited to hold on without wavering. Without wavering implies, by the way, that there will not just be some things that will come and pull us away, but strong things over time, big issues that will try to pull us away. And Jesus is not interested, by the way, in you starting out strong just so that you can become a brick in the kingdom and then you die along the way, and that's just your lot in life is just to suffer for the name of Jesus. Or to be used up in the building project like your life doesn't actually really matter. Because remember, Jesus said he came in John chapter 10 to give us life to the fullest, life overflowing more abundantly. God does not desire to, that you simply make a confession, but that you hold on to it without wavering. So, in, in Colossians chapter 4, I think we begin to see a, a, an example of what this might look like for us to hold on. Uh, forgive me, Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. It says, just as you have received Christ as Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. In other words, hold on. Like this, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And another translation says, let your roots grow deep down into Christ and your entire life built upon the foundation of him. He says, just as you are taught and overflowing with gratitude, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. In other words, hold on without wavering to the confession of your faith. How do you do it? You are rooted in Christ and built up on him. Not simply connected to Christ, but your entire life is rooted in him. He's the source of your life. He's the thing that holds your life together and he's the foundation on which you build everything. So Jesus is meant to become the soil that we grow our roots into and the foundation we build our life on top of. And the fruit of this is that we won't be taken captive, deceived, bound up by human traditions, or overcome by the world. And then I find inspiration in two stories, and I'll just make reference to them quickly for you today. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll show you the, the scripture references so that you can check them out later. There are two places in scripture that I find inspiration for this holding on. What does it look like? The first one is in the Old Testament, a guy named Jacob. Now, Jacob had an older brother. His name was Esau. Jacob had an issue where he kind of like jacked his brother's birthright, and Esau was big mad. And he wanted to kill his brother, and Jacob ran away. And years and years later, Jacob is an incredibly wealthy person, but he's been convicted he needs to go and make it right with his brother. So he goes home. He's making it right with his brother. He's absolutely terrified that his brother is still going to kill him. And so he sends gifts, a series of gifts in advance to his brother Esau so that he can try to appease his anger because he's still terrified. And the night before he's going to go over to finally meet his brother Esau face to face, Jacob is encountered by what we would call a theophany. It is, it is the, the presence of, of God in this moment. So it's actually a wild moment. You don't see anything like this in the rest of Scripture where, where it seems as if God is literally showing up before Jesus in physical form and having a wrestling match. 
In fact, Jacob and God, it says that they wrestle all through the night. Jacob wrestles with the man until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip. I'm out of his socket. And he goes, let me go. It's daytime. And Jacob says this, not until you bless me. Here's why this reminds me of the holding on and what it looks like for us to hold on without wavering is that Jacob held on because he knew that he was holding on to the source of blessing. And if I let go of this source of blessing, then, then I'm going to miss out and I want to be blessed. In fact, I'm, I'm desperate for blessing. I'm about to go meet my brother who I'm pretty sure wants to murder me. The second person's in the New Testament, a guy named Peter. You've probably heard of him. He was the loud mouth of the disciples. Uh, and, and in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching some pretty difficult things, and, and he goes on to teach some even more difficult things, and people are getting confused and a little bit frustrated. And then a bunch of the disciples just ditch Jesus. They're like, we're out. You're wild. We cannot hang. And so he turns to the disciples and he says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And, and Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jacob holds on for dear life because he knows that he is holding on to the source of blessing. And Peter and the rest of the disciples hold on to dear life because they have found something in Jesus that is the only source to the words of life. And they say, if we abandon you, if we let go, then we're sunk. We will lose the source to the words of life. And the thing that links these two stories together is desperation. And it's interesting how often we come to Jesus out of a source of desperation and we let go because we somehow over time lose our desperation for Jesus. It's interesting, I, I, I've heard it said that we we're supposed to come into the kingdom on our knees, but we stay in the kingdom on our knees as well. The place that you live in the kingdom is always humility before God. The place that you live in the kingdom is always desperation. And I think one of the great temptations that the world, the flesh, and the devil will bring into our lives is that we no longer need to hold on to the confession. Jesus got us in. We're good. And I think it would be wisdom for us to heed the invitation of Hebrews chapter 10, which says, Jesus got you in, hold on for dear life, because you are lost without him. You were lost before you used his name to get into the kingdom as a free gift for his, through his love for you, and you would be lost if you let go now. Hold on. So how do you do it? You live with desperation. You do not forget that you are lost without Jesus. Amen? Now, practically speaking, as we begin to land this, the plane, what does this actually look like in my life? I think the how of being deeply rooted and built up on Jesus is, is similar to the image of a baby tree. If you've spent any amount of time in the Antelope Valley, you know that this is one of the windiest places in the world, and it is impossible for a tree to be planted without needing a stake next to it right? In fact, you can see what's interesting about that picture there is that the stake is like right up next to. This is how we roll in the Antelope Valley. I've seen some other places around the country, around the world where they stake trees, and it's like the wind is like, that's yeah, cute, little breeze, you know. So they put a stake like, you know, three feet away from the tree or a couple of stakes around. It's just like these, these stakes are just like kind of chilling, laying back. 
and the tree's kind of over there. We're tied together by like some thin plastic. No, in the Antelope Valley, I need to be like soldered to a stake for the rest of my life. In fact, there's an interesting thing that sometimes happens with a tree that has a stake right up next to it like that. When the tree actually grows, did you know that sometimes the tree grows up and around the stake? So I propose to you that the metaphor is that the stake is like the disciplines that you practice in your life so that you can be tied to Jesus as a baby. Because your roots need time, tied to something so that you can grow deep down into Christ and your life can be built up onto Christ. And the goal is not that the stake goes away, but that you consume the stake. That, that all of these spiritual disciplines, things like, do I read my Bible? Do I join uh, the worship gathering at church? Uh, do, I, do I fast regularly? Do I worship? Do I pray? The spiritual disciplines, and, and we've talked a lot of, about spiritual practices and disciplines here at the church. The things that you do that help you not be a Christian, but live as a Christian. And these spiritual disciplines, I want to be tied to them. And then, and then maybe in this metaphor also, the stake represents the community of faith that I am tied to. Because I will just be blown around by the wind if I'm just bouncing around all over the place. I'm hearing all kinds of different things. I'm not actually connected to any community. I blow right on into church on Sunday, and as soon as they dismiss, I blow right on out. Please don't talk to me. I want nothing to do with any of you. You people are dangerous. I don't know that I trust you. Have you lived through 2020? Y'all are nuts. Don't talk to me. Anybody? Anybody? Just me? Oh, okay. <laughs> There is something that I don't get outside of the community of believers that is my local church that God has called me to be a part of. I was talking to a friend just recently about how I remember the day that God said, Tim, you're not just supposed to be the pastor of your church. You have to also be a member of your church. And that set me on a trajectory to learn what it feels like not to just be the talking head on Sundays, but a person who can also receive ministry from the people in my church. I'm thankful for friends like Sarah Duick who on a regular basis would come up to me and go, Tim, you look tired today. And I hate that she says it because she's right. <laughs> and then she just goes, let me pray for you. Just the other day, she came up to me and she said, I've got three things I'm praying for your entire leadership team right now. And she listed them, and they were exactly what we needed. Because I've learned to be tied to the community of faith. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But the goal is that you are built up and that your roots grow down, not in isolation and not by sheer strength of grit but by practice in the context of community, letting your roots grow deep down into Christ, built up on the foundation of him, holding on so that you can hold on. Or as Paul says, having done all to stand, I stand. Having done the work that empowers me to stand, I stand. You can't do that just because you feel happy on Sunday. I mean, Thursday's coming. Thursdays can be rough. Friends, we started this day by saying, pour your spirit out.
an understanding that it was an invitation to say, God, I believe that you are pouring your spirit out. I surrender. And I believe that we are ending this day on a reminder that we will not build the church in our strength. We build it together. We build it rooted in Christ. We build it as we practice disciplines to help us resist, stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the goal of all of this is not that you outgrow the things that help you stay connected to Jesus, but that you incorporate the strength. The goal is that as you surrender, as you practice, as you engage, as you lean in and as you hold on, eventually the tree that is your life is meant to grow so big that you can offer shade and fruit to those around you. So, so maybe there, there would be a, 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 an encouragement of wisdom for those of you that feel like the baby tree, hold on. For those of you who feel like the big, full-grown tree, give us shade and fruit so that we together can hold on. Cannot do this alone. We will build together what we cannot build alone. Amen? So Jesus is inviting us to join the project to assemble his church. Our part begins with confession, and our part continues as we hold on to our confession. Obviously, the question is have you confessed? Obviously, the question is, have you placed your faith in Christ? And if you have not done that, today is the day. If you've been wandering and, and, and wavering and letting go, then today is the day to come back. I love something Pastor Mark said just a few weeks ago. No matter how far away from God you've gotten, you are always only one decision away from the presence of God. And let today be that moment. Let today be the day where you say, God, I am tying myself to the church. I am tying myself to my confession of faith. I will not let go. I will tie myself to spiritual disciplines. I will tie myself to the reading of your word, to praying every day. I will tie myself so that I will not let go of my confession, of my faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? And then I want to invite you when I'm done praying, I'm going to invite you to do this, to turn, to tell someone around you something that has spoken to you, challenged you, a place where you feel like God is speaking to you, a thing that you learned. And then I want to invite you to pray for each other. This is how we're going to wrap up our day. You are going to pray for each other. And your prayer is simply this. God, help us together to hold on to the confession of faith. So, Father... Son and Holy Spirit. We believe that what Scripture says about you is true. We confess our faith in you. You are our source of hope. God, would you protect us from the enemies of our confession? even in the places where we are our own enemy. And protect us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, we ask that you would give us your mercy and your grace.
for all of the ways that we have held our confession loosely and help us to grow our roots deep down into you. Lead us to build our lives on you as the foundation of our lives as we work with you to assemble your church in your image. May your name be honored and kept holy in our lives and also, God, in this church. In Jesus' name. Amen.